Section nine of the History of England from the Accession of James the Second, Volume three, Chapter fourteen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of England from the Accession of James the Second, Volume three, Chapter fourteen, by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Section nine. Those clergymen and members of the universities who incurred the penalties of the law were about four hundred in number. Foremost in rank stood the primate and six of his suffragans, Turner of Ely, Lloyd of Norwich, Frampton of Gloucester, Lake of Chichester, White of Peterborough, and Ken of Bath and Wells. Thomas of Worcester would have made a seventh, but he died three weeks before the day of suspension. On his deathbed he adjured his clergy to be true to the cause of hereditary right, and declared that those divines who tried to make out that the oaths might be taken without any departure from the loyal doctrines of the Church of England seemed to him to reason more Jesuitically than the Jesuits themselves. Ken, who both in intellectual and in moral qualities ranked highest among the non-juring prelates, hesitated long. There were few clergymen who could have submitted to the new government with a better grace, for, in the times when non-resistance and passive obedience were the favourite themes of his brethren, he had scarcely ever alluded to politics in the pulpit. He owned that the arguments in favour of swearing were very strong. He went indeed so far as to say that his scruples would be completely removed if he could be convinced that James had entered into engagements for ceding Ireland to the French king. It is evident, therefore, that the difference between Ken and the Whigs was not a difference of principle. He thought, with them, that misgovernment carried to a certain point justified a transfer of allegiance, and doubted only whether the misgovernment of James had been carried quite to that point. Nay, the good bishop actually began to prepare a pastoral letter explaining his reasons for taking the oaths. But, before it was finished, he received information which convinced him that Ireland had not been made over to France. Doubts came thick upon him, he threw his unfinished letter into the fire, and implored his less scrupulous friends not to urge him further. He was sure, he said, that they had acted uprightly. He was glad that they could do with a clear conscience what he shrank from doing. He felt the force of their reasoning. He was all but persuaded, and he was afraid to listen longer, lest he should be quite persuaded, for— if he should comply, and his misgivings should afterwards return, he should be the most miserable of men. Not for wealth, not for a palace, not for a peerage, would he run the smallest risk of ever feeling the torments of remorse. It is a curious fact that, of the seven non-juring prelates, the only one whose name carries with it much weight was on the point of swearing, and was prevented from doing so, as he himself acknowledged, not by the force of reason, but by a morbid scrupulosity which he did not advise others to imitate. Among the priests who refused the oaths were some men eminent in the learned world, as grammarians, chronologists, canonists, and antiquaries, and a very few who were distinguished by wit and eloquence, but scarcely one can be named who was qualified to discuss any large question of morals or politics scarcely one whose writings do not indicate either extreme feebleness or extreme flightiness of mind. 
Those who distrust the judgment of a Whig on this point will probably allow some weight to the opinion which was expressed many years after the Revolution by a philosopher of whom the Tories are justly proud. Johnson, after passing in review the celebrated divines who had thought it sinful to swear allegiance to William the Third and George the First, pronounced that, in the whole body of non-jurors, there was one, and only one, who could reason. The non-juror in whose favour Johnson made this exception was Charles Leslie. Leslie had, before the Revolution, been Chancellor of the Diocese of Connor in Ireland. He had been forward in opposition to Tyrconnell, had, as a Justice of the Peace for Monaghan, refused to acknowledge a Papist as Sheriff of that county, and had been so courageous as to send some officers of the Irish army to prison for marauding. But the doctrine of non-resistance, such as it had been taught by Anglican divines in the days of the Rye House plot, was immovably fixed in his mind. When the state of Ulster became such that a Protestant who remained there could hardly avoid being either a rebel or a martyr, Leslie fled to London. His abilities and his connections were such that he might easily have obtained high preferment in the Church of England, but he took his place in the front rank of the Jacobite body, and remained there steadfastly through all the dangers and vicissitudes of three and thirty troubled years. Though constantly engaged in theological controversy with Deists, Jews, Socinians, Presbyterians, Papists, and Quakers, he found time to be one of the most voluminous political writers of his age. Of all the non-juring clergy, he was the best qualified to discuss constitutional questions, for, before he had taken orders, he had resided long in the temple, and had been studying English history and law, while most of the other chiefs of the schism had been poring over the acts of Chalcedon, or seeking for wisdom in the tagern of Onkelos. In 1689, however, Leslie was almost unknown in England. Among the divines who incurred suspension on the 1st of August in that year, the highest in popular estimation was without dispute Dr. William Sherlock. Perhaps no simple presbyter of the Church of England has ever possessed a greater authority over his brethren than belonged to Sherlock at the time of the Revolution. He was not of the first rank among his contemporaries as a scholar, as a preacher, as a writer on theology, or as a writer on politics, but in all the four characters he had distinguished himself. The perspicuity and liveliness of his style have been praised by Prior and Addison. The facility and assiduity with which he wrote are sufficiently proved by the bulk and the dates of his works. There were indeed among the clergy men of brighter genius and men of wider attainments, but during a long period there was none who more completely represented the order, none who on all subjects spoke more precisely the sense of the Anglican priesthood, without any taint of latitudarianism, of puritanism, or of popery. He had, in the days of the Exclusion Bill, when the power of the dissenters was very great in Parliament and in the country, written strongly against the sin of non-conformity. When the Rye House plot was detected, he had zealously defended by tongue and pen the doctrine of non-resistance. His services to the cause of episcopacy and monarchy were so highly valued that he was made master of the temple. A pension was also bestowed on him by Charles, but 
that pension James soon took away, for Sherlock, although he held himself bound to pay passive obedience to the civil power, held himself equally bound to combat religious errors, and was the keenest and most laborious of that host of controversialists who, in the day of peril, manfully defended the Protestant faith. In little more than two years he published sixteen treatises, some of them large books, against the high pretensions of Rome. Not content with the easy victories which he gained over such feeble antagonists as those who were quartered at Clerkenwell and the Savoy, he had the courage to measure his strength with no lesser champion than Bossuet, and came out of the conflict without discredit. Nevertheless, Sherlock still continued to maintain that no oppression could justify Christians in resisting the kingly authority. When the convention was about to meet, he strongly recommended, in a tract which was considered as a manifesto of a large part of the clergy, that James should be invited to return on such conditions as might secure the laws and religion of the nation. The vote which placed William and Mary on the throne filled Sherlock with sorrow and anger. He is said to have exclaimed that if the convention was determined on a revolution, the clergy would find forty thousand good churchmen to effect a restoration. Against the new oaths he gave his opinion plainly and warmly. He declared himself at a loss to understand how any honest man could doubt that, by the powers that be, St. Paul meant legitimate powers, and no others. No name was, in 1689, cited by the Jacobites so proudly and fondly as that of Sherlock. Before the end of 1690, that name excited very different feelings. A few other non-jurors ought to be particularly noticed. High among them in rank was George Hicks, Dean of Worcester. Of all the Englishmen of his time, he was the most versed in the old Teutonic languages, and his knowledge of the early Christian literature was extensive. As to his capacity for political discussions, it may be sufficient to say that his favourite argument for passive obedience was drawn from the story of the Theban Legion. He was the younger brother of that unfortunate John Hicks, who had been found hidden in the malt house of Alice Lyle. James had, in spite of all solicitation, put both John Hicks and Alice Lyle to death persons who did not know the strength of the dean's principles thought that he might possibly feel some resentment on this account, for he was of no gentle or forgiving temper, and could retain during many years a bitter remembrance of small injuries. But he was strong in his religious and political faith. He reflected that the sufferers were dissenters, and he submitted to the will of the Lord's anointed not only with patience but with complacency. He became, indeed, a more loving subject than ever from the time when his brother was hanged and his brother's benefactress beheaded, while almost all other clergymen, appalled by the Declaration of Indulgence and by the proceedings of the High Commission, were beginning to think that they had pushed the doctrine of non-resistance a little too far. He was writing a vindication of his darling legend, and trying to convince the troops at Hounslow that, if James should be pleased to massacre them all as Maximian had massacred the Theban legion for refusing to commit idolatry, it would be their duty to pile their arms and meekly to receive the crown of martyrdom. To do Hicks justice, his whole conduct after the revolution proved that his servility had sprung neither from fear nor from cupidity, but from mere bigotry. Jeremy Collier, who was turned out of the preachership of the Rolls, was a man of a much higher order. 
he is well entitled to grateful and respectful mention, for to his eloquence and courage is to be chiefly ascribed the purification of our higher literature from that foul taint which had been contracted during the anti-Puritan reaction. He was, in the full force of the words, a good man. He was also a man of eminent abilities, a great master of sarcasm, a great master of rhetoric. His reading, too, though undigested, was of immense extent. But his mind was narrow. His reasoning, even when he was so fortunate as to have a good cause to defend, was singularly futile and inconclusive, and his brain was almost turned by pride, not personal but professional. In his view, a priest was the highest of human beings except a bishop. Reverence and submission were due from the best and the greatest of the laity to the least respectable of the clergy. However ridiculous a man in holy orders might make himself, it was impiety to laugh at him. So nervously sensitive, indeed, was Collier on this point, that he thought it profane to throw any reflection even on the ministers of false religions. He laid it down as a rule that muftis and augurs ought always to be mentioned with respect. He blamed Dryden for sneering at the hierophants of Apis. He praised Racine for giving dignity to the character of a priest of Baal. He praised Cornille for not bringing that learned and reverend divine Tiresias on the stage in the tragedy of Oedipus. The omission, Collier owned, spoilt the dramatic effect of the piece, but the holy function was much too solemn to be played with. Nay, incredible as it may seem, he thought it improper for the laity to sneer at Presbyterian preachers. Indeed, his Jacobitism was little more than one of the forms in which his zeal for the dignity of his profession manifested itself. He abhorred the revolution, less as a rising up of subjects against their king than as a rising up of the laity against the sacerdotal caste. The doctrines which had been proclaimed from the pulpit during thirty years had been treated with contempt by the Convention. A new government had been set up in opposition to the wishes of the spiritual peers in the House of Lords and of the priesthood throughout the country. A secular assembly had taken upon itself to pass a law requiring archbishops and bishops, rectors and vicars to abjure, on pain of deprivation, what they had been teaching all their lives. Whatever meaner spirits might do, Collier was determined not to be led in triumph by the victorious enemies of his order. To the last he would confront, with the authoritative port of an ambassador of heaven, the anger of the powers and principalities of the earth. In parts, Collier was the first man among the non-jurors. In erudition, the first place must be assigned to Henry Dodwell, who, for the unpardonable crime of having a small estate in Mayo, had been attainted by the Popish Parliament at Dublin. He was Camdenian Professor of Ancient History at the University of Oxford, and had already acquired considerable celebrity by chronological and geographical researches. But, though he never could be persuaded to take orders, theology was his favourite study. He was doubtless a pious and sincere man. He had perused innumerable volumes in various languages, and had indeed acquired more learning than his slender faculties were able to bear. The small intellectual spark which he possessed was put out by the fuel. Some of his books seem to have been written in a madhouse, and, though filled with proofs of his immense reading, degrade him to the level of James Naylor and Ludovic Muggleton. 
he began a dissertation intended to prove that the law of nations was a divine revelation made to the family which was preserved in the ark. He published a treatise in which he maintained that a marriage between a member of the Church of England and a dissenter was a nullity, and that the couple were, in the sight of heaven, guilty of adultery. He defended the use of instrumental music in public worship on the ground that the notes of the organ had a power to counteract the influence of devils on the spinal marrow of human beings. In his treatise on this subject he remarked that there was high authority for the opinion that the spinal marrow, when decomposed, became a serpent. Whether this opinion were or were not correct, he thought it unnecessary to decide. Perhaps, he said, the eminent men in whose works it was found had meant only to express figuratively the great truth that the old serpent operates on us chiefly through the spinal marrow. Dodwell's speculations on the state of human beings after death are, if possible, more extraordinary still. He tells us that our souls are naturally mortal. Annihilation is the fate of the greater part of mankind, of heathens, of Mahometans, of unchristened babes. The gift of immortality is conveyed in the sacrament of baptism, but to the efficacy of the sacrament it is absolutely necessary that the water be poured and the words pronounced by a priest who has been ordained by a bishop. In the course of things, therefore, all Presbyterians, Independents, Baptists, and Quakers would, like the inferior animals, cease to exist. But Dodwell was far too good a churchman to let off dissenters so easily. He informs them that as they have had an opportunity of hearing the gospel preached, and might, but for their own perverseness, have received Episcopalian baptism, God will, by an extraordinary act of power, bestow immortality on them, in order that they may be tormented for ever and ever. No man abhorred the growing latitudinarianism of those times more than Dodwell, yet no man had more reason to rejoice in it, for in the earlier part of the seventeenth century a speculator who had dared to affirm that the human soul is by its nature mortal, and does in the great majority of cases actually die with the body, would have been burned alive in Smithfield. Even in days which Dodwell could well remember, such heretics as himself would have been thought fortunate if they escaped with life, their backs flayed, their ears clipped, their noses slit, their tongues bored through with red-hot iron, and their eyes knocked out with brick-bats. With the non-jurors, however, the author of this theory was still the great Mr. Dodwell, and some, who thought it culpable lenity to tolerate a Presbyterian meeting, thought it at the same time gross illiberality to blame a learned and pious Jacobite for denying a doctrine so utterly unimportant to a religious point of view as that of the immortality of the soul. Two other non-jurors deserve special mention less on account of their abilities and learning than on account of their rare integrity and of their not less rare candour. These were John Kettlewell, rector of Coles Hill, and John Fitzwilliam, canon of Windsor. It is remarkable that both of these men had seen much of Lord Russell, and that both, though differing from him in political opinions, and strongly disapproving the part which he had taken in the Whig plot, had thought highly of his character, and had been sincere mourners for his death. He had sent to Kettlewell an affectionate message from the scaffold in Lincoln's Inn Fields. Lady Russell, to her latest day, loved 
trusted and revered Fitzwilliam, who, when she was a girl, had been the friend of her father, the virtuous Southampton. The two clergymen agreed in refusing to swear, but they from that moment took different paths. Kettlewell was one of the most active members of his party. He declined no drudgery in the common cause, provided only that it were such drudgery as did not misbecome an honest man, and he defended his opinions in several tracts, which gave a much higher notion of his sincerity than of his judgment or acuteness. Fitzwilliam thought he had done enough in quitting his pleasant dwelling and garden under the shadow of St. George's Chapel, and in betaking himself with his books to a small lodging in an attic. He could not, with a safe conscience, acknowledge William and Mary, but he did not conceive that he was bound to be always stirring up sedition against them, and he passed the last years of his life under the powerful protection of the House of Bedford, in innocent and studious repose. End of section 9